0: I'm Malaya and I'm Kalia and you're listening to intertwined a podcast about human connection human behavior and human experience
1: on this week's episode we're interviewing our godmother and the actress Heather Alicia Sims. Mother Alicia Sims is an actor, writer, director, and educator who has appeared in numerous productions on stage, television, and film. You will soon be able to catch her in the TV show The Kings of Napa, in which she plays Aunt Yvette, airing on own. Her most recent theater credit was in the world's premiere and subsequent remount of the 2019 Pulitzer Prize winning play Fairview by Jackie Sibley's Drury. Ms. Sims recently appeared in both critically acclaimed productions of Lynn Nottage's residency at the Signature Theater in New York. Fabulation, and By the Way, Meet Vera Stark, for which she was a 2019 Obie Award winner for not one but both plays. She's also a recent Aldelco Award nominee for her work in By the Way, Meet Vera Stark. In addition to these credits, Miss Sims recently appeared in such offerings such as The Last OG, Luke Cage, Seven Seconds, and Random Acts of Flyness, as well as an upcoming appearance in HBO's High Maintenance. She's also a recipient of the prestigious Round 4 Fox Foundation Fellowship for Early Career Artists. She's also a proud member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Yeah, we're we're excited to have this conversation with you. And I think, you know, not only are you an incredibly important person in our life, but you have an interesting story and you probably have one of the coolest jobs, I think, out of anyone I know.
0: (laughs) Right, Malaya? Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so we we just want to, you know, introduce you to our audience and talk about your life story a bit and talk about how you got into the acting career that you have now, a successful acting career,
2: by the way. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, okay, so for your audience, I'm Auntie Heather, but before I was Auntie Heather, I was their mom. Right, Mom? I was their mom's (laughs) (laughs) best friend. Um, We met the first day of homeroom, um, Brooklyn, New York, high school. And I would tell the girls when they were little, because we all have the same last name, I would tell them um, when they would ask me why do you have our last name? And I'm like, because your mom loved me so much that she looked all around the world for someone with my last name and she found your dad. (laughs) And so... (laughs) um, Yeah, so that was one of the ways that I would try and entertain my beautiful goddaughters because they were (laughs) little spitfires and I just loved um, telling them stories. But the way that I got into acting yes, I always wanted to be an actor, but I wasn't always um, confident that I could go to my Jamaican family and say, hey, you know I want to do this thing that no one else in my family had done professionally you know Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. come from a family of musicians and artists, but No one had really done it professionally, and so I didn't know what that looked like. And so when I was in high school, what I focused on was medical science. When I went to college, I majored in history and English with a minor in women's studies and African American studies. I started a theater company with a friend of mine, his name is Robert O'Hara, and you know, that was something that I did, but I didn't know how to become an actor. And so when I left mm. school, when I graduated from Tufts, I literally sat in bed for almost a year because I was kind of depressed, you know, for lack of a better term. No, I was depressed. And so... um I was fighting against my own instinct, but I ended up doing a show with Robert. And my father said to me that I needed to get a master's in something. And I was like, okay. And he was like, yeah, you know, (laughs) these days, you know, a bachelor's won't take you far. I was like, what? (laughs) and so I was like okay this man is nuts but I I was like okay he was like just get a master's in anything and I was like anything and he said yeah I was like okay I'm gonna get a master's in theater he was like fine you can always teach and I was like okay and so that's what I did because again my friend Robert who I'd done theater with as an undergrad um said to me oh you know columbia university is you know they're starting this acting program and he was there in their program he was he's an um a playwright and director and i went up there and i auditioned and i got in and that's how it started but did you have dreams of being an actor as a kid or did you ever say that as a kid so in New York City, you have to either interview or take a test or audition for high schools. And one of the high schools that I auditioned for was LaGuardia. And I got in. And I was so excited. I was like, I'm gonna go to LaGuardia, the fame school, all of that. Mm -hmm. And When I came home with the results of, you know, where I got into high school, I remember my parents were like, you're not going there. And I was (laughs) like, what? They're like, you're not going there. And what was interesting about that moment was when I auditioned for LaGuardia, one of the proctors asked me, he said, what if someone told you that you could not be an actor? And I told him, it doesn't matter what anyone tells me. I know what I want to do. And you can't tell me how to live my life. And so I guess I did have the dream. But again, I think it's um it's the idea of not being able to have someone say, Hey, this is how you do the thing.
0: Mm. So were your dreams kind of crushed in a way when you when your parents said you couldn't go to LaGuardia, which
2: is the high school that I went to, by the way? <laughs> I think it was sidetracked. You know, I I I didn't feel like I couldn't pursue being an an artist because even at um Midwood I was able to be and sing and um chorus and be a creative person. But again, you know, even I think the idea of going to LaGuardia was just I would have the opportunity to indulge in something that I liked. I don't know that the idea of it translated to a career for me. You know, because mm-hmm. you, yeah. you both went to performing arts schools. But you saw something different for your lives true and, right true right and so i think mm-hmm. that for me i wasn't necessarily considering that it would be a career but it was something that i would just love to study just just in the same way that i went to tufts and i studied history and english and i loved history i mean i use my degree every day i believe but It was some but I wasn't interested in becoming a professor of history. Right. Yeah. So
1: now after you, you know, kind of realized that this was gonna be your profession and you started to make money. How did you kind of strike that balance of, you know, providing for yourself, but also taking risk and like, you know, knowing when to say no and knowing when to be patient and wait for things to come? Because I think for me, like the most one of the most inspiring things about you is that you have a sense of hustle, but you're also not willing to do anything, you know? Mm
2: hmm. You know, okay, so even though my parents told me that I couldn't go to LaGuardia, um, they were really supportive of my career. Now, mm. I will say that my father was probably more so supportive, but my father was also a musician. He was an educator. He was an educator in New York City public schools. He ended up getting a Ph.D. later in his life. But he was a person who played several instruments. He played the piano, the violin, the guitar, the um f- the flute, the you know he was he was a musician at his core. And so I think there was a level of, okay, you said you're gonna do this thing. All right, let's do it. He always took us to the theater. He always you know we we listened to opera. We did mm-hmm. all of that. And so when he when he realized, okay, this girl is really going to pursue this master's in theater, and it was something that we enjoyed together, we would go to the theater, I didn't feel... I think he felt some comfort in the fact that, yeah, I could always teach, (laughs) and I also felt comfort in the fact that I went ahead and pursued this thing seriously and had the student loan debt (laughs) to to (laughs) say, yeah, you did that, so how are you going to now pay this thing off? And. Grad school was good for me because at my grad school, they were doing this thing where I was in the first class and they said that they weren't going to give us a showcase. And a showcase is the thing that gets people who are in the industry to know who you are. And I remember being like, wait a minute, what do you mean you're not going to give us a showcase? And myself and two other students we were like I th- we need a showcase and I remember I was interning at the Public Theater at the time and there was a producer there named Rosemary Tischler and I asked her if we could use the public and she said yes and the casting director at the time um, Jordan Thaler and he's still there and um, like it was so long ago, (laughs) Um, I asked him, you know, could he come and, you know, help my class? And it was just a matter of really getting my hustle on and saying, you know what, you're not going to stop me in the same way that I said to the man at LaGuardia, you're not going to stop me from doing this thing because I couldn't imagine going through these three years of school um, incurring this debt and then this institution telling me that they're not going to offer the resources that every other MFA program around the country offers so when you talk about yeah you know I could get my hustle on. I'm going to agree with you. Yes, I do. Because (laughs) (laughs) that was absurd. And so I I decided I'm going to ask these people. All they can tell me is no. And we did. We asked. They said yes. They came up. We had our showcase. And that's how I got my first agent. Wow. I know that for me, I needed to, on a certain level, I needed to be faced with that kind of struggle because it was something Mm -hmm. that is a reoccurring theme for all actors. We're constantly being told no, and the no's Mm -hmm. can be really heartbreaking at times, and they occur much more than... (laughs) most people hear no in a lifetime if you're constantly going on auditions Mm, you're not getting those jobs you are you're being told no 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 and then okay yes so have you ever had to decline opportunities
0: even though you are told no so many times like how does that play into decision making and you kind of mapping out your own career and taking ownership over your career
2: there have been times when I've had to say no because of (laughs) because of a conflict there have been times when I've had to say no because I no longer had faith in in the people that I might've been working with. And there comes a time when you have to understand who you are as a person, what you're going to deal with, what you're not going to put up with. And I like to be really collaborative and I'm really loyal. And so I've been with my, with my manager for over 20 years now. I love my managers, you know. Um, But in the beginning of my career, finding the right group of people to work with, it was a challenge. And there were some people who had to be let go.
0: And so how is um, finding your identity in your industry different than In other industries, because I know, like, just going through school, high school, college, undergrad, um, there's, like, tools or whole career centers around professionalism and Mm. um, just, like, ways to define your career. Um, But for the arts, it looks different, and professionalism looks different. So how did you, like, who did you come up under, and how did you find your identity within acting?
2: Mm. That's a good question because it's, um, when I first, when I was about to get out of school, I remember having a crisis, an identity crisis, being a dark skinned, actor who did not see myself and so at the time when i was graduating i i didn't have um a viola davis i had whoopi goldberg but whoopi is such a specific a beautifully specific kind of artist Mm -hmm. and i didn't think that i you know met that Whoopi is an entity onto herself, you know? And because she is Whoopi, mm-hmm. you don't need another Whoopi. And so I didn't see anybody else that looked like me. There was Halle Berry, and I don't look like Halle. I don't feel like Halle, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so I felt like we're. I felt like I don't know where I am. I don't know where I'm going to be placed in the industry because I was still, you know, of that mind where it's like, oh, they are placing me. When, right. I, when I graduated and I started auditioning, there was another actor her name is patrice johnson and we are somehow related as well (laughs) and she would tell me about auditions she would say have you heard about this audition have you heard about that audition and another actor her name is lisa gay hamilton she would do the same when she saw me so i felt i felt taken care of Mm. and i didn't feel like there was this competition i just felt like okay here are these two actors who are trying to make sure that i know what's coming up and so I make sure now to let actors know, especially you know, younger actors who. It's not about competition. We're not competing against each other at all. I've never mm. felt like I was competing with anybody else. I, I've always felt that I am my only competition. I've got to do better than the last time. I've got to figure out what this thing is that I am doing. But I always look to, (laughs) I always look for the helpers. I remember the first time I saw Viola Davis on stage, and I was like, and I felt like I saw myself. Mm. And when Viola, and so I would follow Viola's career because we had friends in common. And I would see her at different events, and I was so proud when I would see her on television. And I would see her in a film. And I was like, oh, okay. This is this is possible in a way that is bigger than I even imagined for myself. Because when I first got out of school, it was theater. I was doing a lot of theater. I did some television, but it was my bread and butter was theater and then it became voiceover and there was some television interspersed, but it was really trying to find my way. Did I, did I answer the question? I feel like I went off on a tangent. No, you did. You did. I mean, you,
1: yeah, it's interesting because even though you didn't really see much representation in your industry, you still kind of found a way to build community and and to to look to people, yeah, and felt taken care of and to look to people for inspiration, even if it wasn't, you know, people in front of you, but just the people around you who are kind of in the thick of it.
2: Yeah. And I think it's so important. I think that if, you know, I don't want to be one of those people that's, Keeping things to myself, I I've never, I've never done that. When I am, because even now during the pandemic, you know, I have friends that I help with auditions, and oftentimes, we're auditioning for the same role, and there are times when I'm auditioning for something, and I'm like, you know what? Let me call this person to make sure that they're going in for this. Because there are times when I can so clearly see my friend doing that thing. And because there's enough for all of us. I do not operate from um, a position of lack. Like, oh, there isn't enough for everybody, so I've got to keep my hands closed. No. When right. <laughs> when I do well, hopefully everybody around me is doing well. <laughs> So,
1: as someone who has had, you know, not to give any hints on your age, but someone who has had a long career in acting, I mean, you can trace your career, like, on the internet back to the 90s. So, you've had a significant career in acting, and I just wonder, you know, you, you just came back from a gig, and I'm sure working during COVID was a new experience for you, but, you know, I wonder... In this new age, how do you feel, as someone who has had to have grit to make it, how do you feel about the strikes? How do you feel about, you know, crews demanding a better experience? How do you personally feel about that? Because I just wonder if there's any tension there between, like, the young people coming up and,
2: you know, the more seasoned folk in the industry. Well, I mean – I don't know if it's tension. I don't I don't know if there's any tension between um younger folks coming up and, you know, those of us that are more seasoned. Um because I have quite a few friends who are quite a bit younger than me who are in this industry and we're just always checking in with each other. But um in terms of the strike, you know, Ayazi um is the union that deals with um, the people behind the scenes, the people that help, that make sure that our industry stays on the right track. Um, This wouldn't be my first experience with a strike, and I fully support IATSE and what they're asking for because mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is when I get to set, oftentimes there are many other people who were there an hour or two early. even if I'm the first person on set, they were there way before me and they will be there way after me and they deserve mm-hmm. everything that they're asking for it is not an easy job. It's not easy being on set, being away from your family because that's a that's a thing that I think a lot of people don't truly um realize that as actors there's a lot of time there are there are a lot of times when we can't do what we want to do. For instance, your 16th birthday. <laughs> <laughs> when I was away and and I thought I had it all in hand. I had an understudy for this job and the person was like, "Oh yeah, I won't be able to cover cover your shows I was all set to come back for your birthday and it couldn't happen I don't think that people really understand and appreciate that there can't be a missing link and so the people Mm -hmm. behind the scenes and I'm you know yeah it makes sense oh yeah you're the actor we're paying to come see your show but if the person is doing the lights and the person who's washing the costumes and the person that is doing the transportation, all of those people, if they don't do their jobs, it's harder for us as actors to do our jobs. It's not, we make it look like magic, but it's not. And it's been, (laughs) during COVID, it's been, Interesting to see how the industry has adjusted. Now, I will say that I think that they found certain things that they can probably use going forward. The first job that mm-hmm. I did during COVID, out of my house job, was a TV <laughs> show called For Life. And it was really interesting how quickly production moved because there what we didn't have all of the all of the things that usually stop production that didn't happen mm-hmm. it was very bare bones and we were able to get through a day and it felt it almost felt like a 9 to 5 which, which was lovely, I think it was lovely for everyone involved. <laughs> now, the show that I did in Toronto, yeah, it was. It, it felt much more like, you know, being on set, you know. We're there from five o'clock in the morning until midnight, right. and mm-hmm. yeah, they're long hours, and it can be a lot but i think that i think that as hard as covid has been and as tragic as it's been there are a lot of lessons that to, that we've learned along the way and i think one of the lessons in terms of iati and this strike is that you know what people's lives and time they're valuable so pay people what they're worth so
0: I kind of want to go uh deeper into kind of this time uh with the pandemic and how it shifted the industry um but so with COVID I feel like a lot of streaming platforms have been pushing out a lot of content and so streaming platforms have been around for a, a while now but how has this time especially with the streaming platforms changed the industry and um how has it changed it especially for um actors and actresses
2: You know I think especially at the beginning we we were home we had time to sit down and watch content and mm. And not just watch content, but we were able to be on Instagram and Mm -hmm, Twitter and Facebook and TikTok and all of these other social platforms and really have conversations. And those conversations, we have to understand that they're not in a vacuum. People are listening. People are understanding or trying to understand, I think, um, what people really want. And so when I look at, when I look at how the industry is moving, or at least trying to move, I think, a part of that, yes, it was COVID, but a big part of it was also the stillness and the protests. So mm, George Floyd's murder was a spark. That happened that had people who didn't normally protest for Black lives getting up and saying enough. And I think some of those people probably turned on their televisions or turned, you know, their streaming platforms to try and gauge and get a better understanding of what's going on outside of their own communities. And I think once people have a hunger for different content, then that pushes a conversation and it starts to push the conversation towards something outside of themselves. Now, I don't know I think that we have to be able to, like, watch, be critical, be supportive, and move toward something that we want reflected in our own lives in terms of um, content and conversations, because... All of it is storytelling, you know. So, which stories do you want to hear? Which stories have you heard enough of? Which stories are they getting right? Because I'm looking at, I I look at I look at our industry not just in terms of um, film and television, but I I often see things happen theater and theater being a spark that pushes a conversation that can only be magnified in film and television. Yeah,
1: I was going to I was going to ask you if you thought acting was like a political act, especially as a black person, you know, acting as a black person, if you feel like that's political. I think it can be.
2: I think, so I did this play called Fairview, and it won the Pulitzer. And it was written by a woman, Jackie Sibley's Drury. Um, and when I tell you, when I first read it, I was like, okay, what is this, what is this play really about? But every, and I did it for two years in a row. So we did it at a place called Soho Rep, and then we did it at a place called Theater for a New Audience. And after it won the Pulitzer, we did it at Theater for a New Audience. And it was interesting to watch audiences come because it was very much about race, but it was about how people give each other space, and it was very political. And it was interesting to see how white people and black people specifically dealt with the conversation that was trying to be had in that space. And I'm just talking about white people and black people now, all races, because they were th- because in this play, play you kind of had to choose. There was a moment in the play where you had to choose your space. And it was interesting to see how just being asked to choose your space could elicit. Anger, um, tears of relief, um, happiness. Some people felt really seen. Other people were like, and, and I mean across the board, you know, black people and white people. There were white people who were like, oh, my gosh, this was so powerful. Thank you. And then others who were angry that we even started this conversation. And that's when it was really early on that I realized, okay, this is a really important piece because quite frankly, I wasn't sure how it was going to be received and and what exactly it was that we were doing on that stage. I'm not saying a lot about it because who knows, maybe one day it'll um, come back. But, (laughs) but, it was one of the most important pieces of theater that I'd ever done in my life. Mm. Now, it's very different from other important works, but I think what's important, especially as a black storyteller, is to tell those stories authentically and too often so like in theater we get to i feel like we t- we get to tell really diverse stories with really diverse bodies and that's not always true in film and television i think it's becoming more true um mm-hmm. But I think with um, theater, especially you know, in the last few years, in theater, the, the, a lot of African stories have been told. And those stories I'm mm. seeing now on television, on th- those voices, because a lot of those playwrights are writing for TV. Right, right. And if you get those voices, that representation that's coming from the theater, that's coming from, you know, someplace that's like they've been able to hone their voices, and you put them now in your living room, you're going hear you're going to hear diverse, uh, um, a diversity of thought that mm. you may not have been able to hear 30 years ago. So mm-hmm. yeah, our the way that we tell stories, I think that yeah, sometimes it can be I think listen. Me being able to work as an actor, sometimes just the fact of my being sometimes feels political. Mm. in terms of the fact that I am a free black woman I'm able to make these choices I'm able to say no I'm able to say yes and I have that kind of agency over my life that I don't know you know that I know 60, 70 years ago, folks didn't have that kind of agency.
0: Or even, um, I guess, kind of in different industries. So Kalia and I talk a a lot about our industries being in tech, and it doesn't always feel like we have that agency Mm -hmm. as a black woman to just do whatever we want and choose
1: what we say yes and what we say no to. And I think, you know, that's what makes just the gig economy in general. So appealing for our people because (laughs) I think, I think we enjoy that freedom, but also it bolsters our creativity. And I think black people are the most creative people on the planet. So yeah, I think that the opportunity to gig and say yes and say no, and kind of pick and choose what, you know, feels right for you and what you represent as a human, as a person yeah, I think that that's just that's special and it's different. We don't we don't live that way. No, yeah, we all. don't.
2: <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is, right? But it's also, I mean, it comes with it comes with um some moments where you do have to decide, okay, what am I going to do this little job because I need to pay some bills and I think that or I have a question how do you decide whether you're going to wear natural
0: hair or unnatural hair Ooh, girl. <laughs> in a headshot <laughs>
2: you know what um, the headshot that I sent you mm-hmm. was a headshot that I found <laughs> on my computer my latest headshot has um, a curlier look but I will say this The hair conversation has been a long conversation with black women. And I remember a time Mm. when, um, maybe about 15, 20 years ago, black actresses were having the conversation that, okay, if you want to work in film and television, you had to have straight hair. And Mm. if you wanted to work in commercials... You could have curly or natural hair. And... Interesting. Who was doing... You know, it's very hard. We know it's not easy to get up and say, I'm going to straighten my very natural hair this morning for this audition. And so it became this whole conversation about wigs. So we were all buying all these wigs. I've got my commercial wig, I got my film wig, I got my TV wig, and this is the TV wig for the lawyer. This is the one for the mom. This is the one, you know. And so everyone had this trunk full of wigs for these auditions. And I think after a while it just became wait a minute, what are we doing? And so, <laughs> it. How do you decide? I think, I think for some, I think for some of us, we just got tired. We were like, you know what, mm-hmm. they're just gonna have to take it like this or not. And then, <laughs> and then you saw people like Lupita and Aisha Hines who were unabashed with their, you know. Short naturals, and bald heads. It was like, oh, okay. And so there comes a point where you look around and you say, "Hey, this is this is what it is." But I think that it's also a, a learning curve, you know, because mm-hmm. a lot of us we, you know, were running around, and it was a con- a big conversation. And what's still a conversation is what happens when you get on set. This last show that I did, the head of makeup, the head of hair, both black women. The the head of wardrobe, black woman. Is that Mm. rare? Yes. And you know what? Mm. And it mattered. Because when the woman who was doing the hair sent us an email and introduced herself and said, I'm a black woman, Uh, my team is black, tell me which products you need, I never
1: Mm.
2: had someone call me from a set and ask me what kinds of products I needed for my hair. Wow. And just the day before a friend of mine was on a set and having a problem with a wig. And it it just felt so freeing. I felt like, okay, I can go to Canada, have my hair however I need to have my hair at the moment and it's not I'm not gonna leave there four months later with no hair. I'll be okay, <laughs> right. you know, even the the woman who did the wardrobe, just understanding how to, how to clothe different bodies, because that's important as well. Black yeah. women, we, you know, come in all shapes and sizes and we love our curves. So are you going to be, are you going to make me feel bad about that? i have a friend who um she was on a set a couple a couple of people that i know at the time maybe been like size 2 or 4s black and had a butt and they were told oh um you're going to have to lose that if you want to work you're going to have to lose that like wait what <laughs> <laughs> you know and, of course, mm. this is way before BBLs and all of that. But why? Why can't you dress me? I'm not walking around the streets of New, New York City with no clothes on. Clearly, I I walked into an audition dressed. You can dress me. But you're trying to make me fit into your aesthetic. Mm. Mm. You know? The, and even just, just the... And, and the makeup. Having someone know your... Now, y'all know I have a birthmark on my face. Mm -hmm. And my birthmark, for your listeners, is lighter than the rest of my complexion. There was one time I went to get headshots done. And this young white woman was doing my makeup. And she decided to... Make my face the color of my birthmark. The color
1: of your birth. Oh my <laughs> god! <gosh. laughs>
2: <laughs> and I was like, um, I don't, um, I don't think this is gonna work. And she was like, Trust me, trust me. And I was like, Okay. <laughs> now you know, I'm like. Maybe there's some new technique that I don't know about, so let me stay in my lane. Y'all, it was terrible. That poor photographer kept looking in his lens like, uh, wait. You know, the girl had to run out. It was in the middle of a snowstorm. She had to go, go to CVS and get my color. And I was like, this is a mess. You know that's because nuts. she was trying to hoodwink me because clearly she didn't have what she needed in her kit, right? You know, and mm. and it's not like now I've I've listen, I've worked with some white um, makeup artists and um hair people and they knew what they were doing, you know, but mm. the thing <laughs> is. We shouldn't have to be afraid to go on set. We shouldn't have to be nervous because our white counterparts aren't. They just come to set. They just go to set. Everything is hunky-dory. They're not worried about, about, oh, my gosh, let me bring my wigs. Let me bring my makeup. Let me bring my blow dryer. (laughs) They're not doing all that. They right. have us working and and the emotion, emotional work that yeah. is not attached to the actual work is is draining.
1: So what do you what kind of advice do you give? I mean, you teach, so I'm sure you give this type of advice all the time. But if there was one piece of advice that you would give a a young, you know, black woman who is interested in pursuing a career in acting, what would you say? Oh, my gosh.
2: Just one? (laughs) Your favorite one. (laughs) Well, my favorite one is, um, and you know, some people will have an issue with this one. I'm like, you know, keep your credit tight because too often you're going to need just a little something and you won't be able to ask that credit card company, you know what, could y'all just, um, open up this credit real quick, <laughs> 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 just real quick. But, oh um, <laughs> and, and I was serious about that because, you know, there were times when it was just, I needed headshots. I needed, you know, and i And even though I could have asked my parents, I didn't want to, you know. And so I was putting it on my credit cards. And the only reason I had that was because, yeah, I paid my little minimum until I could pay more than the minimum. But I always paid it on time. But aside from the credit conversation, the one thing I would say is (laughs) to to try and build your community because I will I will say that when I during this pandemic it was all about the community because we weren't able to do the thing that we loved in the same way but we had to stay together so we did a lot of zoom readings. I met and was able to acquaint myself with talent that I hadn't seen before because I was still in community with people. And then even, you know, auditioning. I had a friend, we auditioned together. Like I said to you earlier, we would just get on the Zoom, put each other on tape and have Long, wonderful conversations before, during, and after. And then going to Toronto, a friend of mine was there and she was working on another project. And we were able to hang out. She actually, (laughs) her name is um, Adapero Aduye. She was working on another project, actually a project that I had auditioned for, and she got that job, but she was in Toronto, and we were there at the same time. And so we got to hang out, and it was lovely. She played my daughter on an episode of Law & Order uh, Mm. years and years ago. We weren't in this in the same scene at all. But I was her very terrible mother um in this episode. <laughs> and that's why I say keep your keep your community and get your community tight and together. Because yeah. you know, like I said, I auditioned for this thing, but Addie got it and I was like excited for her you know that she got this Mm -hmm. got this job i knew what the job was but these are your friends these are your people and you're only going to get stronger and you you're going to climb with these people right so before we before we close
1: out can you can you tell our audience what's coming up next for you? What do you what do you win? Where can we find you? Ooh. Shout yourself out.
2: <laughs> well, OK, so I've been doing a bunch of audiobooks. books, so um, I keep busy doing that. But the very next thing that you can see me in is a show called The Kings of Napa. It will be airing on OWN in January, I believe, and it's about a black family that owns a vineyard in the Napa Valley, and lots and lots of things happen. I'm playing um, Aunt Yvette, who is a member of Mm. the King family, and she owns her own um, wig company. But, you know, mm-hmm. whereas everyone is super bougie, she is down to earth. She's a cool aunt. And I get to have <laughs> a lot of fun in this role.
0: And we could say the same in real life. You're <laughs> a cool aunt. Cool aunt. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a pleasure having you on our show. And it thank was. you for being our second guest on Intertwine.
2: Oh, I think Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. You know, this is one of my favorite podcasts. I listen, I chuckle, and then I talk to your mom about it afterwards.
1: (laughs)
0: You just listened to Intertwined. A podcast about human connection, human behavior, and human experience.
1: Please be sure to follow us on Instagram and on Twitter at Intertwined_Podcast, podcast.
0: And make sure to engage with us on your favorite podcast
1: platform. Thanks for listening.